welcome you again and to uh, introduce our teachers to my right, slightly grotesque to introduce him, <laughs> the man you've come for, Viko and Alaya. <laughs> to his right uh, on the chair is Shaila Catherine, and assisting our course is Jill Shepherd to the far right. I am a Kinchino, and uh, I'm basically glad you've made it. Uh, some of you, I understand, have come from quite afar. I trust you've gotten something to eat, and you know where you'll be putting your head down tonight. This is always reassuring before one goes into the deep end of the pool to know that some of the practicalities are sorted. Um, we have um, a very fascinating course ahead, and uh, you will have had a look at the schedule and see that this course, if you're used to inside retreats, uh, differs from uh, the usual format. Um, let us maybe start for tonight. I have to say a few things, and then Shaila will chime in and say a few things, and then we do a small, small break. And then Bhante will start his first PowerPoint presentation and take you right into the deep end. Um. <laughs> so, um, he's a very nice man. Not all of us are equally nice, so we have differing jobs on this course. <laughs> Just to get you uh, primed for this, um, we're... So we'll basically support him in his approach to Satipatthana. Satipatthana is a huge quarry of teachings that have preoccupied early Buddhist world for at least 800 years. Texts in all traditions, languages, and scripts can be found. And uh, he will tap into this and uh, we'll support him as much as we can in his approach. And that will look like this, that we, uh, if you have a look at the schedule, um, Bhante will give instructions uh, at 8.30 in the morning and at 2.15 in the afternoon. Both of these instructions are then uh, followed by w what is called a self-scheduled period. Uh, this is a little over two and a half hours of practice where we choose to sit and walk according to our own rhythms. Uh, there is uh, a lunch break out of reasons of compassion. We've decided not to scrap that one. Um, and in the evening, uh, either Shaila or myself will give a short Dharma talk primed by your questions that have, we have fielded during the day in writing. Um, the basket is out at the notice board and you will be able to leave us a written uh, question, preferably pertaining to Buddhism uh, and some of the topics Bhante has addressed. Um, and then Bhante will give um, another presentation preparing you for the next day's instruction. So this is roughly the pattern we will have in the course of the week. Uh, group interviews uh, held by both uh, Shaila, Jill and myself, by all three of us. And as of 
Tuesday we will start doing individual sign-ups. The group interviews are mandatory. We expect you to turn up in those. Uh, we've uh, a careful system of assortment has uh, taken place. We've basically decided to make absolute random groups. So if you in some way feel slighted to be with the wrong sort of people, uh, rest assured this is um, perfectly arbitrary. Yeah. Good. We'll tell you more about groups, uh, group interviews and individual sign-ups uh, tomorrow morning. You, I feel you have had enough information, uh, bitty pieces for today. Let's just pause for a moment and acknowledge this is, an, this is a, a retreat. Retreats are precious times. Retreats are um, things we do plan, and there is something about retreats that has to do with method, with structure, with patterns we predict, we orchestrate, we organize. Um, and then there are things happening which we haven't organized, which we haven't choreographed, and which somehow are not fitting into our plans. I would just like to encourage you from now on just to consider everything that happens to be part of your meditative practice. Even if you disappoint yourself by not being who you think you should be or you secretly believe you are already or, or you need to prove yourself that you're not or whatever of that sort may go on, just consider this as part of your contemplative practice. Hold that term meditation very big yeah. it's a weird christian term anyway it means thinking which is precisely not what buddhist meditation practice is about in most cases yeah. how nobody has ever admitted to me why they came to call such a central piece like buddhist contemplative practices with the latin word for thinking it's never been quite clear to me why this came so make that term, if we have to live with it, make it very big, make it very generous, that everything that happens to you in this coming few days is part of your practice, part of your contemplative uh, inquiry. I would also like to invite you to promise to yourself right now that whatever happens, you're not going to let yourself down. You're not going to turn on yourself with blame and with guilt-tripping and with attacking yourself. If you find you're wanting, if you find you're living behind your aspirations, then this is not a reason for blame and not a reason for self-aversion. It is something that calls for support and compassionate inquiry. The power of this teaching is that by turning an attuned and appropriate investigative mindfulness onto the process of our own experience that is the key to waking up this is one of the most empowering teachings you can conceive and it's right here in front of you so promise to yourself that you will not let yourself down whatever comes in the next couple of days retreats are a mix of things part Ritual, rituals and routines both thrive on repetition. Uh, a ritual is different from a routine insofar as it is 
uh, repetition that is performed and engaged with with the greatest degree of awareness, with the greatest degree of consciousness, with the greatest degree of care. So much of what we do here will be breathing, will be sitting, will be walking, will be standing, will be doing very mundane things. So part of the ritualization of a retreat is that we slow down things, we ritualize things, and we do them as carefully as in a circumspect and attuned way as possible. Obviously, that uh, you know hinges on your presence, on you being here, and I would like to encourage you to um, drop alternative programs. You know, sometimes we go on retreat, and there's a program there. It says on the schedule, and has a title, and the methods are being taught, and then they have other programs going. You know what decisions I have to make in this time when I can think through books I want to read up on. Uh, uh, my jogging program needs to somehow fit in here. Or, you know, sometimes we have alternative parallel programs, which obviously conflict with the official program we have subscribed to. So I would like to encourage you to make conscious such parallel programs and uh, preferably drop them and s stick with one. It's a lot easier and it's a lot less painful, even if this somehow conflicts with your biorhythm. Or, you know. um, that would be my encouragement. Also, part of retreat is that you are not alone. Uh, retreat are collective processes, and that has to be accounted for in some way. You are doing this together. There is an artificiality being with so many people and not talking. Depending on how your childhood has taken place and your socialization went, uh, silence may mean different things to you. So take into account what the silence, being with others in silence, brings up in you and see whether you can get a perspective on this. The silence is not a gesture of hostility and thereby you turn all these other people into meditation hindrances who just disturb your practice. That's not the point of such silence. It's a respectful gesture. It's, we acknowledge, we come here, we all have a story, and there's only one person who can really be responsible to bring this story to a good denouement, to a good uh, end, and that is us. And it is necessary we respectfully offer each other the space and silence is one such way we can do that respectfully to let each other in the practice of returning the light turning the mindfulness inward and it's difficult enough we're focused on so many outward things our life our senses uh, our socialization brings us to focus outward and it's difficult to do that to do the opposite to return that light and become introspective. That's why we do retreats. That's why there are centers and monasteries. So be prepared that the artificiality of the setup may grate a little bit with your habits. If your life isn't a complete retreat, then it is likely to differ from what you're going to do here. Um, be prepared to cope with fatigue, uh, restlessness, mm. I don't take any meditators serious who don't meet such hindrances. Yeah. 
So the point is not to become a different person. The point is not to get into another film, into another movie. The movie you get is the right movie. Okay? If there's part of you that says, I need to do, stop doing this before I can start to practice, then this part is not something I would believe. What happens in these coming days, what happens uh, during these sittings and in the days here uh, of our retreat, this is the practice. So, with that I would leave you over and pass on to Shailam. Well, I have the privilege and the joy to speak about virtue and precepts. And I trust that every one of you here has heard talks on the precepts and virtue, probably at the beginning of most, if not every, retreat you've attended. Um, Roberta mentioned the precepts already in the uh, manager's talk. And since this is a group of experienced practitioners, um, I thought I I would just simply start with the traditional recollection of our own virtue by reading um, from the discourses. This is from the Anguttara Nikaya in the Book of the Elevens, in a discourse to Mahanama. You should recollect your own virtuous behavior as unbroken, flawless, unblemished, unblotched, freeing, praised by the wise, ungrasped, leading to concentration. When a noble disciple recollects his virtuous behavior, on that occasion his mind is not obsessed by lust, hatred, or delusion. On that occasion his mind is simply straight, based upon virtuous behavior. A noble disciple whose mind is straight gains inspiration of the meaning, gains inspiration of the Dhamma, gains joy connected with the Dhamma. When he is joyful, rapture arises. For one with a rapturous mind, the body becomes tranquil. One tranquil in body feels pleasure. For one feeling pleasure, the mind becomes concentrated. This is called a noble disciple who dwells in balance amid an unbalanced population, who dwells unafflicted amid an afflicted population as one who has entered upon the stream of the Dhamma and develops recollection of virtuous behavior. I think it's a wonderful practice to reflect upon our virtue, upon our behavior, upon our conduct. Sometimes when we first hear about the precepts in the early part of our practice, in our first few retreats, they sound a little bit like rules that we should follow. But I found that as my practice developed, it it seemed as though the importance of virtue and the power of virtue only became more and more powerful. It is the basis upon which all the beautiful qualities of mind develop. So when you recollect your own virtue, do you sense your virtue as unbroken, flawless, unblotched, freeing? Sometimes we do. 
Sometimes we can sense the um, beauty of the of our virtue and use it as a support for further development. Recognize how the mind of virtue leads to joy, which leads to tranquility and concentration, and is freeing. It's a great blessing to understand the power of virtue and hold that practice dear to the heart. But sometimes maybe we reflect upon our virtue and we think, oops, maybe there was a blotch here or a blemish there or there was some error that we've made. Don't worry, there's a sutta for that too. (laughs) This one's from the Gamani Samyutta where it says, this is speaking uh, 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 ad- about a disciple who has full confidence in the teacher. He reflects thus, In many ways the Blessed One criticizes and censures the destruction of life. And he says, abstain from the destruction of life. But this is the reflection. Now I have destroyed life to such and such an extent. That wasn't proper. That wasn't good. But though I feel regret over this, that evil deed of mind is done, that cannot be undone. Having reflected thus, he abandons the destruction of life and he abstains from the destruction of life in the future. Thus there comes about the abandoning of that evil deed. Thus there comes about the transcending of that evil deed. And then, of course, it follows the same pattern for taking what's not given, sexual misconduct and false speech. So sometimes we look at our behavior and we realize that we blew it. What do we do then? Do we berate ourselves? Do we hate ourselves? Do we give up on ourselves? No, the precepts are still our support. We recognize that that we breached our precept, that we our action didn't hold up to what we know to be truer, better, righter, straighter. That in one way or another, we slid into a moment of defilement or a few moments. Okay, so that happened. We recognize it and then we commit again, once again, fresh and clean to practice with our virtue, with our precepts, to make the commitment again not to kill, again not to take what's not given, again not to engage in sexual misconduct or false speech. And of course the fifth precept, which isn't included in this particular discourse, but that's to refrain from the use of intoxicants, drugs, alcohol, etc., And I love this discourse because I like that the Buddha recognized that we're going to blow it. I mean, unless you're a Buddha, you're probably going to blow it. Or you might remember a time before you were a Buddha that you blew it. And so these precepts then are not something that are just for beginners. There's something that we come to again and again in so many ways and embrace them as a joyful support for the deepening of our practice. Thank you. So we'll take a five-minute break and then return for Bhante's um, presentation. <laughs> 